Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Part of my job is to work with some of the University of Sydney's most outstanding alumni. It is my pleasure tonight to welcome one of these distinguished alumni, Professor Herbert Huppert back to Sydney. Professor Huppert is director of the Institute for Theoretical Geophysics at the University of Cambridge. He graduated in applied mathematics from the University of Sydney with first class honors and a university medal in 1964. In 1968, he went to the University of Cambridge for what was meant to be one year, some 50 years later, has not left. Professor Huppert is a fellow of Cambridge's King's College, Emeritus Professor of Theoretical Geophysics at Cambridge University, and the 2019 recipient of the Australian Academy of Sciences Selby Fellowship. This prestigious fellowship is awarded annually to distinguished overseas scientists to visit scientific centers in Australia. He has also published widely using fluid mechanical principles and applications to the earth sciences in meteorology, oceanography, and geology. As we will hear tonight, his research focuses on carbon dioxide sequestration and applying fluid mechanical principles to the earth sciences. Also joining Professor Huppert for a conversation after his keynote tonight is esteemed broadcaster Robin Williams. As you no doubt know, Robin presents ABC Radio National's The Science Show and Occam's Razor. Robin has been awarded an honorary doctorate in science from the University of Sydney, and he is a visiting professor at the University of New South Wales and an adjunct professor at the University of Queensland. And now, without further ado, I'll hand the microphone over to Professor Hoppert. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, uh, Marilyn. That's uh, very uh, kind of you. Um, I'd like to thank the Selby Foundation for honouring me with this uh, award. Thank Robin, who uh, has agreed to uh, come, and the audience for coming. I'm not totally sure how much gratitude I should show, because I'm sure you've come to hear Robin, much more interesting man than uh, me, as you'll uh, see. I... <laughs> want to uh, tell you something about the background to uh, climate change and then tell you about sequestration, how you might go about storing the carbon dioxide deep in the uh, ground. I'll tell you a little bit about some theory, little mathematics, don't worry, no equal signs, uh, and I'll show you maybe a video of some experiments. I'll talk about other methods that might be tried, and then I'll have some take-home messages. And, of course, the first take-home message is we don't want to end up like that. This is really a very bad uh, situation. Well, I'm really going to start with two main ideas. The first is John Tyndall, who was the director of the Royal Institution and a very good uh, physicist. In about 1880, he uh, thought to himself, I know what the average temperature of the uh, Earth is, about plus 20 degrees. And I know the sun that uh, comes onto it, 
So maybe I could calculate whether that's all consistent. So he went through the calculation, how much sun would come down, how much the ground would take up, and he got minus 20 degrees as the average. Now, this wasn't a schoolboy slip of a minus sign. It really was a proper minus sign. And he was very worried about that. That clearly couldn't be right. It didn't agree with the data. So he wondered about it for a while. And then he was a Victorian. He was used to glass houses and very well knew the idea that the sun shone through the glass of a uh, greenhouse. It interacted with the ground and then radiated at a different wavelength, which couldn't get through the glass. Greenhouse, very important, warmed it. Let me tell you, because I do now live in England, as was said, generally it's freezing damn cold in England, so you need those greenhouses, otherwise no plants would grow or have difficulty. So he thought, well, maybe the atmosphere, this very thin region around the Earth, maybe it somehow acts as a greenhouse. Maybe there are some gases in the atmosphere that would make it be exactly like a greenhouse. So he thought, well, he'd better measure what the greenhouse effect would be. And he measured it first on nitrogen, 80% of the atmosphere, oxygen, and both were zero. It wasn't a greenhouse gas. Then he thought about water vapor, a little bit of water vapor in the air. It wasn't a greenhouse gas either. And then somehow he thought about carbon dioxide. And he found, he knew how much carbon dioxide there was in the atmosphere. He worked out, uh, or measured rather, this carbon dioxide. And then the average temperature using that as a greenhouse effect was plus 20 degrees. So he was very happy um, about that. Robin told me just uh, before that an American woman, a scientist, had actually done the same calculation some 10 years uh, previously, which is very interesting, but I didn't uh, know that. Now, let me just sort of to confirm his ideas, talk a little bit about Venus. The temperature on Venus is 470 degrees centigrade, rather hotter than we're uh, used to. And in comparison with the Earth, there's roughly the same solar input. So how come it's 470 degrees centigrade? Well, the reason is that the atmosphere is 97% of uh, carbon dioxide. It has a different atmosphere, huge greenhouse effect, heats it up like hell. It's not what we would uh, like, I don't think. Now, what he didn't do, because he was a very clever man, he just looked at averages. He didn't look at understanding the details and all the complications of the atmosphere, the ice, the melting, the formation, the evaporation, all of this that's shown here. It's even much more difficult than I show you here because it varies from one place to the other. What goes on in the atmosphere over Australia is quite different, let me tell you, than what goes on in the atmosphere over England, for example, but also South Africa. And it's also time dependent. Uh, it changes with time, and it's a very complicated system. There's no doubt about that. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point I'd like to uh, make is that Australia puts out about 1% of the total carbon dioxide emissions into uh, the atmosphere. 
and while I don't like saying it as a proud Australian, <laughs> as a group of Australians, insignificant. 1% doesn't make much difference. However, um, the amount of carbon dioxide that's introduced into the atmosphere due to fossil fuels which start in Australia, in other words, sending coal overseas, etc., is about 4.3%, and that's also insignificant. If you cut the 4.3%, that's not going to do much uh, difference. However, the difference between 4.3 and 1 is very significant for the Australian economy. There is a lot of money involved in going from 1 to 4.3%. As we all know, the huge amount of the shipment, and that is worth a lot of money to Australia. And that's, in a sense, the second point that I want to uh, um, make. So in some sense, if you're, well, no, not all, if any of you want to go home now, you've got the main part of the uh, talk and you can uh, go home. But don't all go home. That would be embarrassing. What I want to uh, show here is uh, the energy consumed in the world. And it only goes from 1965 to 2005 because I've given this talk a number of variations of the talk a number of times. And I got sick of making it up to date every uh, time. And it's easy to make up to date. You just extrapolate the lines. There's nothing special that's happened. And in where there are special things, I have kept that up to date. But you see, over 85% comes from gas, oil, or coal, from uh, fossil fuels, and this is rising. Now, this is the so-called Keeling curve. Dave Keeling came uh, to uh, the University of California at San Diego, where he did a PhD for a postdoc, and he didn't have the slightest idea what he wanted to do but he knew he loved sailing. He had his own boat, and Chip Cox, his supervisor, had no idea what he wanted to do either, and he said, you know, no one's ever measured the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere away from the continent, away from the polluted uh, points. Why don't you go to Hawaii? On Saturdays and Sundays, you can sail your boat, and on weekdays, you can make measurements of the carbon dioxide. So uh, Dave Keeling uh, made these uh, measurements, and at first, he noticed in the first few years that it went up as the uh, um, trees uh, let out their carbon dioxide, as the leaves uh, died, and then it went down again as the leaves grew and took in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So for the first few years, it just looked like a seasonal change that was most important, but it's gone on and on and on, increasing all the time. The average is increasing. And something that I like very much is that Dave Keeling unfortunately died. I don't like that part, but Dave Keeling unfortunately died and his son, R Ralph Keeling, took over. So this really is father and son, the uh, Keeling curve, and he now does it. Now, this is, as you see, uh, some eight, nine years out of date. It's now something like 410 uh, parts per million, and you could uh, draw it in. You see how that's uh, going up. And you remember, it's a greenhouse gas, so you'd expect the atmosphere to get hotter and hotter. This is now an indication of the temperature change as a function of month. It's the average global temperature from 1850 to 2016. And you'll see, here we go, 1850. But you see, it varies without a doubt. It's not uniform. You wouldn't expect it to be but it is in general going outwards. Generally, it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. 
up to 2016. So there's no doubt that if you just want to know what the temperature changes from today to tomorrow, this graph is of no use and my saying it's getting hotter and hotter doesn't mean anything. It's over the long time scale that it is getting hotter. This is now another indication uh, just from 1850. It's really the same uh, style, though it's on a graph. And what you see is that sometimes it increases quite rapidly, 1910 to 1930. Sometimes it's rather regular, 1890 to 1910. It's a very complicated system. It doesn't obey simple uh, rules. This is now going back some 800,000 uh, years, and it shows you the temperature and the carbon dioxide concentration, which we get from ice cores in the uh, Arctic and Antarctic. And what you see is they're very well correlated. This is long before mankind was around, very, very uh, correlated. And what else you see, and I don't have a point, does anyone have an umbrella? No. Does it ever rain in Sydney? Um, what, let's look at this one uh, just at sort of uh, 350,000 uh, um, in, in, in the uh, temperature. You see that it goes up really quite uh, quickly, i.e. the ice melts as the uh, temperature of the Earth goes up quite quickly, and then it takes much, much, much longer to go down again, much longer for the ice to uh, freeze, and it doesn't do it anywhere near uniformly. You see again the latest one at uh, 120,000 or so, very rapid uh, um, melting, rapid increase in temperature, much, much slower uh, decrease. This is uh, now, in some sense, the same thing, only I'm showing you uh, only a, a thousand years, and you see how the carbon emissions and the carbon dioxide concentration have really swept up in the last uh, 100, 120 years since uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution and technology played such a role. This is an indication of the difference between the December 2010 value and the average between 1961 and 1990. And you see two things. First, most places have got hotter. It's not always true. Australia's hardly changed at all on that time scale. Most places have got hotter. And what I want to say with terrible annoyance is it varies enormously geographically. It's not uniform across the globe. And the reason why I'm annoyed is I once pointed this out in the lecture when there are three or four people uh, from, I better not say which department in uh, Britain, and one of them who were meant to advise on climate change, and one of them put his hand up and said at the end, really, there's spatial variation? I didn't know that. And what I thought was quite different to what I said was, yes, there is quite a bit of spatial variation. But here he was giving advice, this guy, uh, and he didn't know that. Um, this is now an uh, indication of some of the increase. Uh, the number of cars in the world, something like 800 uh, million now. In the US, it's something like uh, 300 million. And that's pretty close to the population of the US. So what that means is, on average, every person in the US has a car. The five-year-old kids, they have their own car. 
Ten-year-olds, they have their own car. You see, that for the younger people in the audience, that's the advantage of being an American. You start driving at a really slow level. Um, in 1900, there were 8,000 cars in the US, and I'm sorry, I tried to get the equivalent numbers in Australia, but I just couldn't find them. The 800 cars in the US, 300 million now, there was only 144 miles of paved road in all of the US, and I would have loved to have known what the Australian was, but I couldn't find that. And what I like best of all, having a PhD from California, none in California, no paved roads whatsoever. There's more than 150 miles of paved road just around the University of California that I got a PhD in. This is now looking at the minimal value of the Arctic ice, and it's plotted here. It happens in September, and you see it started, the area was 2 billion square kilometers, and it's gone up and down but it's definitely in average gone down and the lowest is in 2012 and I haven't continued that, but it's 3.39. So it's more or less dropped by a factor of three. Uh, it is important that there are times when it's been for a long time rather equal. Other times it's uh, gone up. You have to consider long-term averages. You can't, the weather is too complicated to consider just the, a year or so. <clears throat> this is now an indication, and I like this slide because it shows in East Antarctic that we're getting ice formation. There's been ice freezing in the last uh, um, 25 uh, years, but we see in West Antarctica, uh, it's mainly melting, well, it's always melting, and the amount of melting, the melting rate is very much larger than the uh, solidification rate uh, on the other side. This is now a uh, photograph which, on the one hand, I love of uh, Australia. I was so enthused by this, I forgot to write down which Friday afternoon it was. I think it was the last Friday in January, but it was definitely of this uh, year. And I like showing my Cambridge uh, colleagues a quarter of Australia is over 45 degrees centigrade. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but that really is enormously uh, hot. And we've heard on the news of how that's led to fires and enormous uh, problems. This is now the summer mean temperatures in Australia. And I show this again to show you that it's very irregular. But it has been generally increasing over the last uh, century going from negative values compared to the average, uh, the long-term average, to positive values, and the most positive has uh, been the uh, latest uh, value there. This is now an indication of the rainfall, and this is just the rainfall for something like three months, and quite recent, as you see there. But what is remarkable is how much is the lowest on record? Lowest on record in just those three months. How much is the highest on record just in those three months? So what you get from there is that the variation is also uh, increasing. Not only is the temperature increasing, but 
the really hot times and the really cold times are also uh, increasing uh, or they're getting colder. Uh, and that's the uh, consequence of which is the rainfall. Here's now the mean temperature. Maybe I should have put these slides the other way around. Again, uh, this is just a trivial little three months. Look how much is highest on record. Um, look how much is lowest on record. This little bit here. Life in Western Australia must be interesting uh, for those people uh, there. Now, there are a number of uh, cities that are going to be in big trouble. One is uh, uh, in Bangladesh, where as the sea rises, because as I'll show you uh, later, all this melting water, this warming is going to make the sea rise, and Bangladesh is just going to be swept underwater. The 150 million people in Bangladesh can happen very slowly. It's not that it'll happen suddenly. So that means the people will get a chance to leave. They won't like that. They won't like to leave their home country, but they're going to be taken in somewhere. And the people who take them in are not going to like it much either. That's understandable. You don't want a large number. And we know what uh, a lot of Australian politicians think of that. Uh, we don't uh, want that. But more to the point is Darwin. Uh, where the sea level will also uh, rise and uh, it's uh, going to get to be very hot. And the point I want to make is that it's a global problem. It's the first global problem that we've ever had. When there was pollution and so there were thick fogs in uh, London, nobody cared less about uh, it here in Australia. When there was a problem with sewage put out in uh, Bondi uh, and it caused difficulty in the ocean there, no one in England could care less. And so it was those problems were solved locally. This problem is a global problem. Everybody is affected and everybody has to get uh, involved. This is now the sea level uh, change in the last uh, 30 years or so. Um, and you see it's gone up and up and up as melting takes place. And as heating of the ocean takes place, because the atmosphere above it is getting hotter. And here's an indication of how important each part is. The ocean expansion uh, is about 50% of the sea level rise over the last uh, 20 years. And again, I could multiply this by uh, a third to bring it up to 2013 or so. The glaciers and ice caps uh, melting, the Antarctic ice sheet plays a role, and the Greenland ice sheet plays a role. They play a smaller role than the expansion of the ocean. But I'd just like to let you get a feeling for what a smaller role means. Uh, Greenland lost 280 billion tonnes of ice each year between 2002 and 16, and a billion is a thousand million. I had a party a week ago, Robin very kindly came, and I advertised the party by saying, I'm going to serve you some ice, but nowhere near as much as is really uh, melted in the uh, world. They, they got three or four little chunks each, not billions of uh, tons. Um, 
The loss in 2013 was four times that in 2003. Uh, the Arctic ice loss has tripled since 1980 in the sense I showed you that in another uh, uh, graph. And the Antarctic ice loss is about 220 billion tons each uh, year. Now, so the IPCC has made a projection of what this means. A low prediction if somehow things can be controlled, they say, a best or under different circumstances uh, um, suggestion, and a high temperature rise uh, suggestion. Now, first of all, I'm going to say it was stupid, totally stupid, to talk about temperature rise and to say let's keep it to within 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees. Because I guarantee you in four hours' time, it'll be two degrees colder than it is now in uh, Sydney. Uh, two degrees, is, it's, it's a meaningless point. What you should talk about is billions of tons of carbon dioxide. And next, let me say, ladies and gentlemen, these predictions are total garbage, total and utter garbage, because who knows what's going to happen. If uh, Putin uh, and uh, the American president decide to have a war, all of that will uh, be different. You have no idea. It could get much worse. It could get much better. And I always find these predictions, and there's a famous uh, saying, nothing is so difficult to predict as the future. And that's definitely the uh, case uh, here. This is a nice little uh, diagram of... Uh, the sea rises in London, uh, covering uh, the Houses of Parliament. And let me tell you a biased interest here. My son was an MP, and I used to say, I don't want him living in those uh, circumstances. That would really be uh, unfair. And there are lots of cities that are at risk of flooding, including Sydney. We all think, oh, but Sydney has these cliffs and hills and everything. But there are bits in Western Sydney that are very low-lying. And the water can come up and it'll find its way through the harbour, et cetera, et cetera, and cause difficulty in these western uh, suburbs. People often say, let's save the earth. Now, let me tell you, that also is absolute rubbish. The earth has been round for 2.5 billion years. It's totally safe. Don't worry about it. I guarantee you. Would anyone like to bet it'll be still here for another 12 billion years? Okay, and we'll get together and you'll pay me? You better, 13 billion years, then I'll tell you whether... Anyhow, that's garbage. It's not the save the earth, it's save the people on the earth. That's what's uh, really uh, important. And I happened to get a video this morning from a friend of mine where um, Kerry, the ex... Uh, presidential candidate was being interviewed in the Senate and uh, the senator, my God, said, uh, but one second, uh, five million years ago, such and such happened. And Kerry said, yeah, but we weren't around five million years ago. And the senator said, does that matter? Does that matter? <laughs> I said to the person who sent me the video, I wish you hadn't. Um, now, people are now calling it a climate emergency, which it definitely uh, is. There have been these wonderful uh, um, school children um, complaints, and I like uh, uh, this one. And oh, it's rather out of focus. I'm sorry. Uh, 
Well, there are even more million people here than you can see. Uh, this is, uh, there were many thousands of uh, school children, as you know, who were demonstrated in all the cities in Australia. Just to put this into perspective, I'm sure you remember the huge demonstrations there were against the Iraq war in Sydney, in America, in Britain, on the continent. What difference did it make? None whatsoever, says the lady, and she's right. Uh, none whatsoever. What difference will this make? I don't know. I'd like to show you an example, and I'm terribly sorry this is a British example, but I don't have an Australian one. This is the typical chamber uh, in the UK of the House of uh, Commons. They complain bitterly that there are not enough seats uh, for uh, the MPs. My son can be seen there somewhere. Um, and that either a new one should be built or, say, some of the people, let's get rid of some of the electorates. Wouldn't it be nice if we got rid of Johnny and uh, I took over his stay? So this is the typical UK parliament. And this is a photo I was shown just a few days ago. There was a meeting on climate change, discussion on climate change, and you see the place is empty. Why did our MPs miss this climate change debate was the question in the, uh, on the Times. And what's in some sense worse is to the right of the speaker, in other words, to the left of what you see, is the government seats. And there are two junior ministers there, two people, I can't recognize them, two others, and then three very uh, junior MPs sitting on the back. A few more in, on the Labour side, but still, here's the most important problem in some sense, and the MPs can't be bothered to uh, turn up. Um, I've already said 85% of the world's energy uh, demands come from fossil fuels. We're putting out 37 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide each year. China leads uh, with 11 uh, gigatons. That's 30%. USA is second. India is third. UK and Australia, well, I've already said, that's rather small. Now, there's a different way to look at this. You could talk about the number of tons per, per year per person. And here we win. We're in front of absolutely everybody. And I sometimes had a bit of difficulty saying that in uh, the United Kingdom. They're not so proud of my <laughs> ambitious, aggressive, uh, competitive self. But, you know, here it is. Uh, the USA is just uh, behind us, uh, UK, but and it goes down, and I love putting Nepal down there because it's uh, point one, so minuscule. And now I could say the point, Nepal will be affected just as much as we will, as the Americans, as the Chinese will, even though they're trivial. But they don't do anything, but they'll be affected just as uh, much. This is a slide which shows what I want, but it isn't the slide that I really would like in the sense that it shows five years or six years worth of data. I would have liked 20, 25 years worth of data. And it shows in billions of tons a day uh, a gradual increase. And that's what I want to show you because that's talking about uh, uh, fossil fuels. Now, actually, this is in China, the sewerage in a town in China. So it's the number of billions of tons per day, and it's increasing. 
Now, what are you going to do about that? If I had a Sydney uh, version, it would be exactly the same. You'd say, I'll say to this gentleman here, could you please use the toilet rather less? Do you think you could hold it in and uh, just put out less sewage? Do you think you could do that just for me? I could flush less for my roommates would be mad. <laughs> <laughs> flush or what else could you do is Sydney could build bigger sewage works. Let's see if this is on. <laughs> now, the first thing I want to ask you is um, the insignificant amount that Australia, no difference at all, you know, tiny, tiny numbers. Now, I often feel that about myself and morality. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm only one person. You know, if you take that attitude as a nation, as an individual, nothing counts. Doesn't matter what you do. What the hell? And then I'm reminded by a small nation, not terribly far from here, that has a tiny population, say just five million. And not too long ago, the prime minister of that country did make a difference by leadership. Do you think that is why it does matter, even though it's a small number? Absolutely. That's a very uh, good uh, point. And I would have come, uh, I have some wonderful slides here <laughs> that say leadership can play a large role. And of course, leadership by New Zealand or Australia uh, in this matter could play a large role. And I'll tell you that uh, the chief scientific advisor, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, his name, uh, David King, uh, said uh, more or less exactly what you were saying to Blair, saying, you know, we should play a role. We should show, we can, we're Great Britain, we should show uh, a role and the Chinese might well follow. And so Blair went to Bush and said exactly the same thing to Bush. And Bush said, ah, not until China decreases its output are we going to do anything. The other thing I will... You've got wonderful graphs and you're, you're in How business again. There's a nice picture up there. <laughs> but um, I was looking at those comparisons that you make in terms of other things. Uh, on the radio two weeks ago, I put on the figures for wasted food. Now, wasted food has to be grown before it's thrown away and it has to be transported to various places. And it turns out that America, the food it wastes, in terms of energy, this is just the, that proportion, that, that energy, not all the rest of it, but just the energy for wasted food would run everything in Britain I didn't and know. all of Sweden and all of Switzerland, that energy. Now, let me give you an example of one. You mentioned the kids who went on, and we've got some of the young people who uh, went on strike. For that very reason, you know, you saw them from the sky, you picture. Um, now, if you do make a difference, if you um, are Craig Rucastle, who did a series of films on the waste of food, he went to Kaima High School and showed the kids how you could make a difference by recycling everything that normally you throw away. And within a matter of just a few short weeks, they reduced their waste power output by 90%. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is there are things that could be done which would get tremendous results. 
I agree totally with that, that Australia could show the way, but the, it would have to start, it seems to me, with the leaders showing the way. Uh, and Do you think we should have an election? <laughs> <laughs> we have, have they been talking about it? <laughs> we should have an election where both leaders say climate change is really important and I'm going to make it very clear and I'm going to influence the rest of the world. Why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they doing that? Gee, that's a difficult question. Oh. <laughs> May I give you an example? This is just dropping the name of somebody who's um, like yourself. In She was in geology. Uh, she's now in the history of philosophy of science at uh, Harvard. And uh, she she wrote a book called Merchants of Doubt. Oh, yeah. Naomi Oreskes. Now, I recommend that book. Have you mm, I have come across it? How many people here have read it? Not the, oh, quite a few, yeah, about six or so. The point about we're, we're in business again, I'll go and sit down in a <laughs> You are sitting down. <laughs> exactly, but I'll sit down in a more fetching way over there away from you. <laughs> but um, she worked for Western Mining in South Australia. She's an American, and she's now, as I said, at Harvard. And she wrote a book about the ways in which doubt is sown. And you start an election and you think you're going to have some really important questions debated apart from whether you're going to save 250 bucks at the end of the year. Because many of the promises won't happen till four years' time. I'll be dead. No. I'll probably. No. I'll be slowed down. No. <laughs> but the promises are about how you will make you know, a handful of dollars in four years' time instead of the kinds of things that you're talking about. So what would you do to change the debate like that? Well, I agree totally. I've just been presenting in some sense the data as it is, and I said what happens in the future can change. And I think you're right. The New Zealand uh, Prime Minister just made New Zealand seem much, much uh, better in the eyes of the whole country. Brexit at the moment is doing the exact opposite for Great But the Britain. interesting thing was she did it with the opposition as well. They work together. Uh, I, I'm not a uh, prime ministerial uh, candidate no, or, no. or ability. But, no, it's definitely right. Australia could show the way and that would uh, be a good thing to do. And to come back to your uh, point about a huge waste of uh, food in America, there was a fabulous or terrible uh, um, experiment done uh, at a big American cinema where some popcorn, a large amount of popcorn, had been uh, um, made about two weeks previously. And it was pretty lousy. But everybody got a free carton of uh, popcorn. And there were either small cartons, medium-sized cartons, or big cartons of this lousy popcorn. The people took it into the cinema. Some of them came back later and complained about the lousy free popcorn. But now the point of the experiment was that the thrown away cartons, who could eat, especially a big one, were uh, looked at and examined for how much they had. And the smaller cartons had less taken from them than the medium-sized cartons, than the big cartons. You give somebody a very big carton, even if it's not good, <laughs> uh, they're going to eat uh, more. That's the American style.
And uh, that's mm. uh, an example of what you were saying. Yeah. Huge meals are uh, served to Americans and they don't eat the, all yeah. of it, but they eat more than they need. Two more questions before I let you go back to your slides. Um, one question is, is talking about throwing things away. Uh, there's a gigantic amount of light plastic, as you probably know, mm. and uh, it's floating in the oceans and we're trying to get rid of it in all sorts of ways. And uh, it costs huge amounts, just like the wasted food, you know, vast quantities, as well as killing animals and so forth. And so uh, I have a number of sources of good science, and one of them is The Economist magazine. And I know the people who edit the science pages. And when they had their 150th anniversary, I went to the science pages, and there were two pages on what to do with light plastic. And the answer was, you make roads out of it. Instead of using asphalt, which of course is carcinogenic, and uh, you don't you have to transport it, and it's all very boring. But if you use plastic instead, it turns out that they cost half the price, these roads, and last three times as long. Why wouldn't you do it? And then you go to the bottom of the page, and it's a sesquicentenary edition of The Economist. Look it up. Uh, not now. <laughs> and um, where is the pilot being done? In Sutherland, Sydney, and outside Tullamarine. Here. Oh, I Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and then, you know, I interviewed the guy who was doing it, and I broadcast it. Absolutely no reaction. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, it's only light plastic. And I said, what's wrong with the, the heavy plastic? Oh, we haven't actually shown how you can use that because there are certain problems. So I mentioned this to a, a young man, everyone is young compared to me, <laughs> called Tom Mashmeyer, who happens to be yeah. professor of chemistry at uh, which university? Oh, I know here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, It was a long travel for you to get to meet him. A few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> I said, uh, how are you going with the heavy plastic uh, that you were telling me about? Because he was actually launching the batteries that you put in buildings, so that the buildings are batteries themselves. And he said, we have solved the problem of heavy plastic. We can recycle the bloody lot. In fact, we've opened a industry in Britain only two months ago. And you said that in front of the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, Young Spence. The possibilities are endless if someone gets their act together. Uh, and that's why the kids should, mind you, I, I work for the ABC, so I've got no opinions. The second, <laughs> the second question is... <laughs> are you not the same guy I've known for 30 years? <laughs> are you about to tell us how you get carbon out of the air and sequester it? Yes. Go on then. <laughs> no, no, no. But first I'd like to uh, comment on uh, Robin's very good point. There are lots of ways of getting around problems and lots of good ways if only we do something about it. But just having a good idea or a scientist saying do this, that's not enough. You've got to influence the leaders and uh, the uh, principal uh, businesses to do it. And, yeah, you're right. And if I knew how to do it, you know, I wouldn't be giving a lecture. I'd be going... <laughs> Oh, here we are. Well, where, where were we? Let, let's start here. Oh, it's going to. Uh, right. So as Robin had uh, forecast, he's a clever cookie. Uh, one way is to sequester the uh, carbon dioxide. You take the gas, you put it down some 
800 meters or more into the earth, the overlying rocks produce pressure. You know, gases are really quite compressible, and it comes down to when it becomes a so-called supercritical fluid. It's like a liquid. If you put it down further, the density doesn't change uh, very much, and so the space that you uh, save, in a sense, is rather little, and it costs more to go down further. So the idea is, could you bury it at uh, a depth of more than 800 uh, um, meters down so that it would solidify? One thing I'll say right at the beginning, the amount of space available to um, bury the carbon dioxide is much, 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 much greater than the amount that uh, there is in the atmosphere. That's not the problem. There's huge amounts of uh, space to uh, do that. This was tried out in uh, Sleipner, uh, the Norwegian uh, oil company, which took out from the Sleipner East uh, field uh, gas, and they used to uh, um, burn off the carbon dioxide at the surface, and then they got a tax break to instead put the carbon dioxide back into this formation at about uh, 800 meters. The carbon dioxide is released. It, uh, the idea was that it, in its liquid state, it's less dense than uh, the uh, interstitial water that's in this sort of rock with lots of pores in it. It's really uh, just like uh, the rocks around Bondi Beach or something. There's really quite a lot of uh, space. It's less dense and so it would rise. It would then come to a very or relatively very impermeable uh, region and it would spread across as a so-called gravity current because it's gravity and the difference in density that makes it uh, spread. Of course, what happened was a little different, um, that uh, it came up as it should, then it met somewhere between 10 centimetres and about 50 centimetres, relatively impermeable regions, and so it swept across and then it broke through and then went up and up and up and up until finally it did come to uh, this uh, seal here. Um, now, to give you an indication of how good Sleipner is, which since 1996 has uh, been sequestering a million tonnes of uh, carbon dioxide, here's a power plant, uh, a 50 megawatt sort of typical uh, coal power plant, puts out 10,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide per day, uh, and Sleipner sequesters about 3,000 tonnes a day. So it only does one third of that. It's by far the longest, most successful um, sequester of uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, there's another one that started about two years ago in Western Australia, the Gordon Project, which is very, very secretive. I've tried to find out something about it, and I've been told that's not possible, and that, you know, that's within their rights. I might just say, because I want this to be true, well, sorry, what I'm going to tell you is true. I want the implication to be true. I uh, talked about this in Perth, and somebody came up to me later and said, look, my best friend is uh, from the Gordon Project, and he has a large role. And then he called me up two or three days later and said, I spoke to him, and he said he'll give you some data. So far, nothing's come, but it would be interesting to know if uh, something does uh, come. Um, the best project by far, scientifically, is the Otway project in uh, Victoria, uh, and nothing leaked there, nothing went wrong. They did lots of different experiments, 
and it was all run by a wonderful man called Peter Cook who came here, and this partly answers uh, Robin's uh, question. He came here about 1995, I can't quite remember, 2000, and he said, look, sequestration is really important. It's something we need to do. He managed to talk some people into it <laughs> and set up this Otway project, which has been terrific. It, uh, um, it uh, trained many people who went in other places. But while we talk about this, let me uh, tell you a uh, little experience I had. I know Peter very well, and I was once in Canberra Airport, and we were talking uh, about general things, and a woman came along, and Peter introduced me to her. She clearly knew Peter very well, and she was from some federal ministry board that was deciding on how much more money the Otway project would uh, get. And uh, she said, I hate to tell you, Peter, we've decided just to give you 10 million. And Peter said, but I need 30 million. And, well, you're only going to get 10 million. And I felt I was at a table tennis match, 30 million, 10 million, 30 million, 10 million. And so I said, because you know, I've got to be the star of the show, um, you're both wrong. And they looked at me and they uh, sort of combined and said, how can you say we're both wrong? You don't need 10 million or 30 million. You need Julia Gillard, who was the Prime Minister at the time, to come forward and say on the TV, we really need to do something and show the line. Just as uh, So that's the problem. It, uh, Julia Gillard, as you know, didn't do anything uh, of that uh, sort. Um, I could, how much longer can I go on for? Three minutes. Okay, the cost is about... 2% of the GDP, something like a year's uh, growth. From place to place, uh, it costs more for capture, transport, and storage, but somewhere between 20 and 100% uh, percent, uh, extra for uh, electricity and power generation. Um, just to give you an indication of the space that's available, this is just in the United States, and you see here just in the seven most uh, open spaces, there are 3,631 billion tonnes of uh, space available to put in the carbon dioxide. Now, America would only store American uh, carbon dioxide. The idea is not to transport it from all over the world. So there's something like 100 years of storage space just uh, for the whole world, but only America will use it. And the other thing, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you see how good scientists are and how worthwhile this is, that they've evaluated this estimate to four significant figures, 3,631, not 630, but 631. How people do that, I don't know. <laughs> Um, these are the current uh, projects, as I say, uh, Gorgon, uh, which, about which I and everybody else knows nothing about, Otway. And the thing that's terrifying is there's no experience being gained in Africa, virtually nothing in South America. That's lots of little places being uh, sequestered uh, in uh, America, um, a little bit in uh, Europe, but nothing in uh, Asia and in a lot of other places. Now, I'll just quickly say there are possibly other ways that you could tackle this problem. Uh, a woman called uh, Joanne Chory, if I'm pronouncing her name, probably got a breakthrough prize for $3 million uh, 
because she has the it's seven o'clock. Oh, what did you say, Robin? <laughs> That's my computer. <laughs> I have a female computer, you see. <laughs> That uh, uh, she has this idea that there are plants that can grow, take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and then put it in the soil, and it stays there. Now, I find it fascinating, this uh, photograph that I got from her uh, website, uh, the soil is only <laughs> six inches uh, deep. Uh, how this will work in practice, I uh, don't uh, know, but it's a possibility. Another idea which is used by CarbFix is to put uh, the stuff uh, into the earth where the carbon dioxide will somehow uh, evolve with the surrounding rocks to make uh, magnesium carbonate or something, some carbonate that will keep it there. The earth does this quite frequently, quite routinely, but it takes millions of years <laughs> to uh, do that generally. Uh, Another possibility, and I, I find this fascinating. Um, well, Grubbin, maybe I'll comment on this. Uh, this man, Ian Power, was uh, um, interviewed on uh, a British uh, science uh, show uh, because he'd just given this talk at uh, the Boston or in Boston at uh, the Worldwide Chemistry Meeting. And he has an, a, a way also where he says quite quickly, you see, in 70 days, he can not only put the carbon dioxide and make it into uh, magnesite, magnesium carbonate, um, but he makes a big deal about the fact that he needs little balls it's somewhere here and he can use the balls again. And I thought this was fascinating. So I rang him up. No, I sent him an email and said, look, uh, could you send me some of the things that you've done and, and your papers? And there must be an abstract, for example, for this meeting. And he wrote back and he said, well, I wrote a paper about four years ago and there was no abstract for the meeting. I'm terribly sorry I can't tell you anything more. Well, I thought it was fascinating. There must have been an abstract. But he didn't want to tell me. He thought I was a competitor or something. Um, okay, I'm coming to the end, Robin, now. Um, Global warming due to human intervention is almost certainly uh, happening. I think there can be long-term effects and around the whole globe, which are rather uh, uh, frightening. And here's a point that I didn't quite make before, is that politicians have a lifespan of three years or maybe six years, and this is going to be much, much uh, longer. Uh, and uh, it's already causing trouble, but... You know, um, even the next prime minister is unlikely to be in terrible trouble because of it in his lifetime. Well, of course, in his lifetime, that means in Australian nine months. Um, but uh, the cost financially into human life of doing nothing uh, could be enormous. And really, we should do uh, something about it. And this is the point that Robin made. Uh, act now before it is too late. And to continue Robin's uh, thought, how do you act uh, now? Well, the final uh, point I'll leave you with, there are no jobs on a dead planet. My instruction is I have one question. <laughs> I did uh, something in the program uh, the other day which illustrated that um, something that the chief scientist says, Alan Finkel, you know oh, yeah. him, I think. He said there are no perfect answers. There are lots of imperfect ones. And if you put them together, you're in business. It's very interesting. And uh, I could think of all sorts of things such as the way 
they're discussing in northern Queensland exploiting the coast, Adani and such like. And it just so happens that if you allow the development of the coast by leaving it there and letting the natural systems flourish, according to Jane Lubchenco, who was the second person other than the chief scientist in, in America who working for uh, Obama, she's a marine scientist, you can make 30% more wealth by leaving it there and exploiting the natural things, and making you know, lots of business. You, know, you don't have to give up enterprise. And um, uh, for example, you, you've got the figures for the absorption of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Well, seagrasses, and I've said this before in this room, absorb a hundred times as much carbon dioxide as tropical rainforests. Bloody seagrasses, mangroves, leave them there, develop tourism properly, and exploit the natural area, present, preserve the fisheries, and we far more wealthy than that 4% that you indicated, which is Adani and the rest. And so the figures go on. But I, those, those seem to me the interesting figures. What you've got now, typically during an election, are the, the figures that bewilder you, something to do with investment of this and super at that, and whether the electric cars do this, that, and the other. And it's nothing to do with the future and investment like that. I agree totally with you that there are lots of things that could be done, but one has to start and do them. Yeah. Things <laughs> must. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au.